Paul prayed for a work in our hearts, and that's really what I am praying for and what desiring out of our time in John today. Paul said to the Ephesians, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And that's a knowledge which goes beyond doctrinal information and understanding. That's a knowledge that's personal and growing. And it isn't necessarily always new information, but it's a deeper and closer and more intimate knowing of God. And then he says, goes on to say, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. And he prays for some specific things that, he, that relate to what he's been teaching already in the first chapter of Ephesians. This morning, that's really my heart desire, that, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened together as we consider the glories and wonders of our Lord Jesus. What must it have been like for the Apostle John when it first began to crash over him just who Jesus is? I've wondered about that. I mean, what? You, obviously, as you read the Gospels, you know they struggled. <laughs> they struggled to get him and to understand him. But bit by bit, his most intimate followers, the Apostles themselves, came to understand more and more of who he is. They came to believe it. They came to receive it, take it in. Now, he can't really say how much John fully got. And as we're reading the opening words of the Gospel of John, the things he's saying are so amazingly great and lofty. Did he realize all of that while Jesus was still here? Who knows? Jesus did say later on in the Gospel of John, you remember Jesus said, I've got many things to tell you, but you're not ready for them yet. But when the, when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so whether or not John fully got all of this while Jesus was sitting right in front of him, still I just, I, I imagine John sitting there sometimes. Maybe they're sitting and Jesus is teaching them or they're just relaxing around a meal or they're walking somewhere and John, John's behind Jesus and just looking at him from behind and just, it just, it's hitting him like, this is our God. This is our maker. And that's really what I hope for this morning as we spend time doing this, that again, I, I'm not going to bang on this point every Sunday. Not all of you heard it so far anyway, but some of you heard it, hearing it again for the second or third or fourth time. But, but understand that we're talking about a real man in human history who lived in that country today we call Israel. And you can visit and you can walk in places where he would have been. And yet to understand and to realize just who he really is. Absolutely mind-blowing, staggering. My concern as we prayed this morning is that we would get this. It's not so much that we teach you something new. It's something that we who preach and teach, we know this, we understand. It's impossible that we could every Sunday say something new for every person. In fact, if we're saying too much that's new, we're heretics. But in reality, what we're looking for is that God does something new. He opens our eyes, that he enlightens the eyes of our hearts and so that we can have a deeper and more glorious appreciation. To to borrow again from John Piper, that we could see and savor 
Jesus Christ. Savor him. Not just have information about him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist wrote. John, again, this is eternal life that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He has caused the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That is, we're going to know the glory of God. We're going to know God's glory. That's a light that God causes to shine into us. He shines it in our hearts so that we can know the glo- God's glory. Where is it that we know God's glory? According to this verse, it is in the face of Christ. That's where we're going for this morning. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The staggering wonders of the word. Let's turn to John chapter one now, if we haven't done that already. John chapter one, verses three to five. John one, verse three. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, last week, we started looking at the staggering wonders of the word. Verse 1, 2, existing forever. The, the word was, in the beginning, the word was. God speaking to us, this is the word, the word of God speaking to us, not only verbally, but in a person, distinct from the Father, the word was with God, in fellowship with the Father eternally, with God, and himself God, the word was God. Now John adds to that, adds the glory and the wonder and the staggering reality, this man that I spent three plus years with I leaned back on him during that final dinner we had together the night he was arrested. This man is the maker of all things. And he's not just talking here about the cosmos. In other words, our physical universe. He's talking about everything everywhere. Very clearly, he says, everything without exception. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And that would include the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, the principalities and the powers and whatever other names and beings there are. The maker of everything without exception. Now, you notice there it says all things were made through him. Literally, it says all things became or all things came to be. There's a very clear contrast in the original language between what it says about the word and all things. It says in the beginning, the word was. All things came to be. He's eternal, and he's the maker then of all things. And it also tells us here that they were made through him. The Father is the ultimate source of all things, the ultimate source of creation. The Son is the instrument or the agent of creation. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, there is one God, the Father, from whom, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. 
and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's interesting to think about this. It takes us again right smack dab into the heart of the mystery of the Trinity. From God through Jesus, we know there is a a hierarchy or an ordering in the Godhead. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. The problem, the difficulty, at least the danger at least, is is when we start thinking about someone being over another, it, it, it starts to suggest superiority and inferiority. We know and understand the members of the Godhead are completely and absolutely equal. And so when you're thinking about Jesus being the instrument and the Father being, or not, I shouldn't say Jesus the human, I mean the Son, the second person, being the instrument and the Father being the the ultimate source, we've got to avoid falling, falling into error of thinking that one is greater and one is lesser. Also in the New Testament, we'll see in just a minute, all things were made by Jesus or by the Son. And so... The language varies, but it's clear that the Son, the second person, is the instrument of creation. We also know, by the way, from other scripture that the Spirit was involved in creation as well. Genesis chapter 1 says, the earth was without form and void, the dark, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This same word for hovering is used for a mother eagle. Fluttering is the way it's translated in the ESV or hovering over her eaglets. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. So a sense of the spirit of God there. At the beginning, the earth is without form and void and the spirit is there. And he also is active in creation. The Godhead as a totality creates Colossians tells us about Jesus or about the Son as creator. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. Notice this, and for him. He created through him, for him. Now that in and of itself, we know this, but it's another angle on it and it's a, it's a helpful angle, I think, to deepen and enrich our sense of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We exist on this planet for him. We do not exist, finally, for ourselves. And so we live, we're, we're, we're learning to live, not for ourselves, but for the one who made us. Jesus is entitled to us, he has rights to us for two reasons. One is because he bought us, but the other is because he made us. You make something, it's yours. He made us, so he owned us outright, but then he bought us, and he owns us twice over. Now you think about what it goes on to say here, verse 17, and he is before all things, meaning because he's eternal, he is prior to them, and in him all things hold together. I mentioned a little of this last week, and some of you are more scientifically informed than I am. I'm sort of not very much, uh, very, very deeply scientifically informed, but so far as I understand atoms and atomic particles and subatomic particles and quarks and all of that stuff, 
Think about this. Jesus is the power in and through and behind and under and over all of that. And he is holding it together. He not only made it, but he sustains it. This moment, the reason our bodies don't just fly apart and the chairs and the room and and everything, the mountains just don't fly apart and disintegrate is because Jesus is holding them together at this very instant by his power. I mean, consider today as we seek to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we can see the staggering wonders of Jesus, consider the power we're talking about. And just think about that. When you think about, you know, we're, we're learning more all the time. Even us non-scientists have a little bit of a sense of the discovery of the power that resides in the atom. And learning to split that thing. And fortunately, we also learn how to make bombs out of it. But just think about a nuclear explosion and how devastating and destructive that would be from our point of view. And then try to imagine that you are, you are far enough away in another galaxy that you could peer through a telescope and see the entire Milky Way in the lens of your telescope. And as you're looking at the Milky Way, if an atomic or, or a nuclear device went off on the planet, the greatest one possibly devised by man, exploded here, it would not even be a flash. You wouldn't even see it happen through the lens of that telescope. It wouldn't even be that little, oh, did you see that? In the great scheme of the cosmos, a nuclear explosion that we can create is immeasurably tiny compared to the power that resides in this created order. And you think of a supernova, a massive giant star, our sun is a medium-sized star. Think of a massive, super-sized star in its death throes exploding. That would dwarf anything that we think of in terms of a nuclear explosion, and it would be visible. And even then, you're talking about a single star in a, in a universe of uncountless, or countless, uncountable numbers of stars. And all of that power when we try to, to take in what this physical universe contains by way of power, it is all from Jesus and held together by Jesus. That's power. He is the maker of all things. You remember when the disciples were in the boat and the storm comes up suddenly on the Sea of Galilee? And they're scared to death, and Jesus is asleep. You know, that, that always, that's always amazing to me. He doesn't even wake up. And they wake him up, and he stands up, and he says, quiet! What was their reaction to that? Who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? This morning, we, we say, who is this that even the whole created order is in the palm of his hands, held together by him. Another statement in the New Testament to this effect, Hebrews chapter one, 
In these last days, he, that is God, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And it says a couple of more things there in verse three, and finally, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The staggering wonders of the word. Be staggered. Ask the Spirit of God to give you a suitable sense of the wonder of the Lord Jesus. Again, I just, did, did John, did John, now John certainly didn't have our scientific information, but did John have a sense of, while he was with Jesus, that he could look at him and say, he made everything and he's holding everything together. Did he know that then? Don't know. But even, even, whenever he first began to realize the implications of what he understood about Jesus, for all of us, in our walking with him, this is a growing and a deepening relationship. What I know and understand of Jesus today is so much, so vast, much vast, more, <laughs> can't even get it out, so much more vast than what I knew 40 years ago. And it continues to grow. And I'm sure I have only scratched the surface. But he, God, by his grace, continues to just open this up and it be, he becomes more and more majestic in our view. There are times when we're singing or times even when I'm preaching that unexpectedly, I'm, I'm not even anticipating, I'm not particularly aware it's going to happen, I'm just suddenly I'm just overcome. And that's why once in a while you see us choke up when we're speaking. It's, I've never naturally been a weepy guy, you know. <laughs> but as I get older and I walk with Jesus longer, the, just the realization sometimes moves me at unexpected moments. And may that be true for all of us more and more. Now, last Sunday, I took a few minutes to talk about the fact that something has always existed. If you were here, you'll recall just a, a few minutes of philosophy. Something has always existed. We were talking about that when we talked about the fact that we have, we exist and stuff exists, therefore something's always existed. Impossible that things can come from absolute nothing. And the question that we left last week and I didn't really talk much about now just to touch it for a moment today is, is the source of all things impersonal or is it personal? The gospel is clear. The source of all things is this living word we know as Jesus. Personal beginning. As you wrestle with this, if you do and are wrestling with it, there's really just the two possibilities. You kind of, sometimes you just mentally or on paper just kind of lay out. Well, what are the options? Well, there's really only two options, impersonal or personal, at the end of the day. Which one better it fits the facts as we know them? We have two basic sources of information to contemplate. That which we see around us in the created world and order, and that which we see inside ourselves. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful discussion of this in Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it or haven't read it for a long time, go back and look at that. It's very, very, very helpful. Now, there are two major things that we discover about ourselves 
that we know about ourselves and we know them. And I would urge you to understand we know them. We can't not know them. We can try to play mind games philosophically and deny them, but it's not doable. Two things. One is that we are personal beings. We have mind and we have heart and we have will. We, we think and we feel and we make choices, etc. We love, we hate. We're persons. The other is that we're moral beings. We cannot deny it. We cannot escape it. We can can philosophize and say it's all created by culture. It's the voice of our parents. All those kinds of things. But in the end, we know that there is absolute right and wrong. We know, even if we can't say why we know or how we know, that it is wrong to take a human life without just cause. So we are personal beings, we are moral beings. The basic point I would make this morning, and I'm drawing this again from Francis Schaeffer, the impersonal plus time plus chance could never produce the personal. What I'm saying there is you can take quarks, that's just as I understand anyway, if you're a physicist and I'm wrong, correct me later, the most, I wanna say the smallest or the least subatomic form of energy, it's called a quark. And then that quarks make up things like neutrons and protons and electrons, and then those are atoms, and atoms molecules and molecules compounds and so on and so forth. What I'm saying is this, things, impersonal things, energy and quarks and atoms and molecules cannot create personhood. Now, many people in the modern world would disagree with me. They think, no, our consciousness and our sense of personhood is just a function of our brain chemistry. I think we know better, and I think no matter how we try to deny it, we can't. We know we're more than that. The question is, if the impersonal cannot give rise to the personal, then where did it come from? It must have come from a personal beginning. And we would say the same thing about the moral, the amoral, that is, stuff. Amoral just means having no morals. Quarks and atoms and molecules don't have morals. They don't care. The universe doesn't care. Some galaxy and some planet and some moon and some star doesn't care if you do something right or wrong. And all of it together doesn't care either. And yet you know and I know in our breast intuitively there is right and there is wrong. So the amoral plus time plus chance can never give rise to the moral. Where does our moral nature come from? It comes from a moral beginning, a moral source. In the beginning was the word and all things were made through him without exception. So, the wonders, the staggering wonders of the word. He is the maker of all things. Next, we find here that he is the giver of life. Verse four, in him was life. What's John talking about here? I believe John is moving, verse three, he talks about Jesus' work of creation. Now he's moving on to his work of salvation. Many people would say, wait a minute, in in verse three, the context is creation, and so as he talks about life, he's also the source of life. 
all life, created life, plants, animals, us, and so forth on the planet. Well, that's true. Of course, it's true. But I don't think John in verses four and five is making reference to Jesus' work of creation. I think he has moved on to his work of salvation. And here's why. Let me show you. Just look at the way it's worded there. Look what it says. It says, in him was life and the life, that's what it says in Greek, the life, that particular life, that life of Jesus, was the light of men, light of humans. Now, you can, you can make that into a, a, create, a, station about, a statement about creation, the, the light. In other words, when he breathed into Adam the breath of life, Adam then had light in the sense that he became conscious. He could see that he was aware. It seems an odd way to me to express the idea of creation. The life was the light of men. Two problems, really, as you read the rest of the gospel, life and light are major themes in this gospel. And always after this passage, when, it, when John brings up the subject of life in his gospel, it's always eternal life or resurrection life, that is, life after this physical death. Life's a major theme. And so as he introduces this now at the beginning of his book, Seems clear that he, to me at least, that he's talking about spiritual life here. And he also goes on to say that the light shines in the darkness. Now again, you could talk, you could say that's a, that refers to Genesis when in the beginning, you know, God said, let there be light. You could take it that way, but really that's not the way the gospel reads. The gospel reads that the light shining in the darkness is Jesus bringing light into this dark world, into our darkness, I'm not going to, I don't have a slide for this, but if you turn over to John chapter 5 for a moment, I'll show you a reference to life that I think makes it pretty clear here. John chapter 4, verse 24. Just examples to, to show you with, throughout the book, we come across this theme of life again and again and again. The, the word life occurs 36 times in John. 17 of those have attached to it the description eternal, eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So here's a reference where Jesus himself talks about having life in himself because the father has life in himself and has given that to Jesus. But he expresses that in terms of resurrection life and eternal life, not so much the creation of life at the beginning. There is another verse, I think, that at least in my mind, it just seals the deal. John chapter 8, verse 12, it's on screen. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the, right there, light of life. We'll come back to that in a few moments and think that through a little bit. But... Going back to John chapter one, in him was life and the life was the light 
of men. If you believe in me, you won't dwell in darkness. You'll have the light that belongs to life. Life gives light. Spiritual life gives spiritual light. This light of this life that Jesus brings and gives is the light for us. We dealt with the theme of life back in May when I was just getting into the book. Remember, beginning statement of the book, John chapter 20. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. That's why John wrote the book. What we need is not church and moral training. We need those in in a sense, but ultimately, fundamentally, our need is greater. It's more radical than those things. Taking a corpse to church isn't going to address the issue. Spiritual corpses come to church isn't going to make them alive necessarily. It's the gospel and Jesus that will make them alive. In this gospel, we find that Jesus came so that we might have life. That was his purpose. That was his mission. John chapter 10, I came that they might have life. Jesus calls himself the bread of life in chapter 6. Verse 51, there on the screen, the last part of it, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus gives food, he tells us, that if you eat, you will have life. You will have eternal life. Chapter 6, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes. Don't be consumed and make your whole existence about earning. And it isn't necessarily just that we're, we're materialistic. It's that we're earning to provide for our families. We've got to work. We've got to have money. We've got to eat. We've got to sleep somewhere. I don't think most of us want to do it in a car if we can avoid it. But even then, Jesus is saying, don't make your life all about that. There's something much more important and much more valuable. Work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus not only gives food, he's not only the bread, but he also gives water. Remember the woman at the well, chapter four. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, he would have given you living water. The, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. John 11, verse 25. Whoever believes in me, though he die here physically, still he will live again. And so finally, comes down to this, John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Please hear the gospel this morning. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not, what? Notice what does it say? Whoever does not, Obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice that. This is very important. 
You want to think biblically about what it means to believe. This verse is crucial. Believing and obeying are inseparably connected when it comes to Jesus. True saving faith or believing results in a life of obedience. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And if you haven't done that, you're not my disciple yet. This isn't just believing information and facts. This is believing, really getting who he is and consequently bowing and surrendering. It's a question to ask yourself again. Have you surrendered to Jesus? And when Jesus, in Luke's record of it, utters that famous call to discipleship, he says, you must die daily. Take up your cross and die daily. Because we keep wanting to take our life back. We keep wanting to unsurrender. Or what happens for a lot of us is we, we go along for a while and we discover an unsurrendered, unsurrendered corner or pocket of our life we hadn't seen before. And let me tell you something. You keep running into them. The Lord keeps revealing things to me, saying, Scott, there's still work to be done here. Oh, really? I thought that one was taken care of. Well, not so much. We've still got some work to do here. Do you have this life? Let me just real quickly take us, you don't have to turn to it, but we'll just run over and use the screen to do it to to another book that John wrote for us, his first letter, the first epistle of John. That book is really about how to know who really knows God, who really knows Jesus, who really has life, and who doesn't. How to make that distinction, how to determine that. In the context that John was writing into, there were people who had left the fellowship of Jesus' followers because they started teaching different stuff. They were claiming they had the truth and they had the real life and the Christians they had left behind, like you and me, they said, you don't have it yet. And so we're here to tell you. We're here to teach you. We're here to set you straight. And John writes his letter to them to say, okay, let's look at this and let's see how you can tell who has this life. And in this first letter, John gives us three proofs of life. And it's a good, good tool for us just to examine ourselves. Not for the purpose of us to judge you or be critical of you at all, but simply for us to urge you and exhort you and to challenge you, to be sure, to know with confidence where you stand with the living God. And so three proofs of life. One is relationship with Jesus. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And John mulls that over and turns that diamond around and looks at it from all kinds of different angles at various facets of it to talk about. People say, want to say they believe in God, they have God, they're fine with God, they just don't believe in this Jesus stuff. And John makes it very clear, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. And here, if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. Second proof of life is love for each other. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
As you examine your heart, what I'd, what I'd urge you to think through and examine here is your heart outlook toward the body of Christ. This isn't so much, I think, it includes this, but I think it goes much deeper. It includes how am I getting along with you? What is my heart attitude toward you? You know, if I'm having a hard time with you, if I have some bitterness or some, some jealousy or some anger or some, some animosity toward you, that's a problem. I'm not loving you as I ought. But I really think John's point runs deeper than that is there's a fundamental sense of identity with and going out of ourselves to our fellow believer. You experience this. Everybody's been through this, right? You're traveling somewhere. You visit maybe a family member's church, and you instantly know who your brothers and sisters are. You feel a sense of reality and connection with other believers when you encounter them anywhere in the world. If that's absent, and you just are indifferent to Jesus' people, you say, I can worship God by myself. I don't have to go to church. You know, the old saw, I don't have to go to church to worship God. Forgive me, I'm going to speak plainly. That's the stupidest thing in the world I've ever heard. Of course you don't have to go to church to worship God, so, <laughs> you know. What's that got to do with the price of tea, China, tea in China? The point John's getting at is there is a love created. When there is life in us, there is a connecting and a bonding with the people of God. And if we don't have that, then we want to examine our heart and say, okay. Again, I'm not here to judge. I'm here to, to warn, to urge, to exhort, to challenge, to encourage. And if you're saying right now, wow, Scott, hmm, you're raising some real question marks in my mind, then what I would advise of you is that you just bow your heart before God and you say, Father, please help me to know for sure where I stand with you. Open my heart and my eyes and my mind to you because right now I'm not clear, I'm not sure, I'm not seeing these evidences that that guy up there is talking about right now. The third one is righteous living. Righteous living. 1 John 2, 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Don't have a verse in this letter that actually says life, the actual word life, but the new birth, being born again, born of God, born of the Spirit. If you're born of God, you will have a lifestyle of righteousness. And that's not just, hey, I'm a good person. That is a lifestyle of obedience to God's express will. Express meaning he has stated did I stutter would be his response, you know? Don't commit adultery. Did I stutter? You're living a life of obedience. This letter makes it very clear. 1 John 2, 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a, I didn't write those words, also, the theme of light and darkness is found in 1 John along these lines. Verse 6 of chapter 1, if we say we have fellowship with him, God, in God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, who is light, while we walk in darkness, that's a practice or a lifestyle of darkness, not just struggling with sin. We all struggle with sin. Here, this is a, a, just a giving ourselves to a life of 
living in the dark, walking in the dark. If we claim to be in fellowship with God, and yet we're living a life that contradicts that, we're lying, and we're lying to ourselves, and we're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All right, so proofs of life from 1 John, three of them. Relationship with Jesus, love for each other, righteous living. Do you have this life? John is writing for us, in him was life, and this life was the light of men, light of human beings. Do you have this life? Please be certain that you do. The final thing we'll look at this morning, invincible light. So maker of all things, giver of life, and invincible light. Those last verses there make it very clear. Another of the grand themes of John about Jesus. He is the light of the world. And because it's such a prominent theme, we'll have opportunity to see it again and we won't go into it quite as deeply today. But notice again the end of verse four there. The life was the light of men. When Jesus comes into a life, when Jesus brings life to a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, when we come to life, when we are born again, the darkness is dispelled. And we have light. We're in the light. The darkness of being lost. That is, we don't really know where we're going. We really don't know what life is for and about. We're lost. We don't know God. We're separated from him. We're alienated from him. And we're really wandering around in the dark. No matter how arrogantly we presume we've got it together and we know what it's about, we're in the darkness. But that darkness is dispelled. Jesus gives life. Thus life is light for us. Our eyes open up. Blinded eyes are open. We can see. The darkness of ignorance and confusion is dispelled. The darkness of unbelief. The darkness of spiritual blindness. The darkness of sin. The darkness of ruined lives. The darkness of death. All of that darkness Jesus dispels when he gives life. Just look at that again for a moment. Chapter 8, verse 12. We saw this... A bit ago, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Life carries in it life, uh, light. Life carries in it light. I've come in the world as light, he says in 1246, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. What's especially glorious about this light John goes on to say for us is that it is invincible. It cannot be extinguished. It cannot be put out. It cannot be pasted over, covered up, darkened out, blacked out. Verse five, the light shines in the darkness. Notice that. What is the verb tense there? The light shines. It didn't just shine at some time in the past. It shines. It's always shining. It's shining at this very moment. And it goes on to say that the darkness has not over, 
overcome it. There's two possible translations of that last word that's translated here, overcome. It could have the idea of understanding it, and that also fits. The darkness didn't comprehend or understand the light. And there are many, and many Bible scholars, many excellent Bible scholars who would say that John is being purposely ambiguous here, using a word that can be taken in more one, than one way on purpose, because he intends both ideas. And that's perfectly uh, possible, because you do discover that about John. The more you study his writings, the more you see that he does that. Well, John, are you saying this, or are you saying that? And he's looking at you going, yes. <laughs> Is it A or B? Yes. <laughs> However, I do think myself and also some Bible scholars, good, solid, excellent Bible scholars would would argue and I would agree that the con- contextually the prominent idea would be overcomes, overpowers. The light has come into the world. It's shining. And the darkness does not have the power to extinguish it. Even though, just think about this, This is the glory of this truth. The world killed it when it came, but could not put it out. The Roman Empire persecuted it, martyred many, and that's been true for centuries, and it's going on today. No matter how much hostility and animosity and killing and destroying is hurled against the light. Here we sit, basking in the light because this light is invincible. And of course it must be because this is the light of the word who always was and always is and who made everything and has the power of life. Who could possibly kill him? They tried that already. How'd that go? You can't put this light out and so we can bask in the glory of the fact that this light is shining today and it continues to shine. It shines even now as we speak the word of God, as we speak the gospel, faith comes by hearing. The light shines and it is a heart's desire today that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that God would cause the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to shine in your heart in the face of Jesus Christ. So as we started out to say this morning, it's not so much to try to teach you new theology. Maybe for some there's been some new thoughts, but fundamentally this is well-known truth. This is classic, famous passage of Scripture. And may God, may our Heavenly Father take you deeper. May He grant you the spirit of wisdom and understanding. May he enlighten the eyes of your heart. And may it be that even for the very first time, you're seeing and knowing who this Jesus really is and understanding why these Christians get so pumped up and passionate about this and can't just let it go. Well, you have your religion and I'll have my religion. It's all cool. It's not a matter of disrespect at all, please. It's never a matter of disrespect. It's just a matter of truth and a matter of wanting you to know the one who is life.